At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. Welcome back to So Very Wrong About Games, a board game podcast about board games. I'm here with my good friend, Mark. How are you this week, Mark? I'm quite well, Walker. How are you? Always good. So this week, believe it or not, Mark, we're going to talk about some games we played this week. Then we're going to talk about some news and why it doesn't matter. And then our feature game of the week, which is Nemesis. But first of all, I'd just like to remind everyone that the BGG Golden Geek Awards are going on right now, so it's a good time to to go over there and cast your votes for your favorite game and or maybe your favorite podcast. I am always prone to bragging about being the co-host of an award-adjacent podcast. <laughs> we are we are amongst a, a great crowd, and I'm honored to be there with them. Mark, what did you play this week? I played Cosmic Frog again. We talked about our first play last week. Our first play was with the designer, Jim Felly, at Devious Weasel. And I was intrigued. I've got the Cosmic Frog bug, no pun intended. And I wanted to see what future exposure would be like, because one of the things that you can reliably say about Jim Felly's designs is that they tend to be sufficiently iconoclastic and or unique or just generally strange that you want to have a couple of different experiences with them to really get a a mature opinion, more so than many other games. And Cosmic Frog is no exception. So fired up the official tabletop simulator module again, played it with Huey, Dewey, and Louie. And one thing was emphasized to me again, and this is very much something that Jim Felly will say about the game. This is a mean game that is not fair. He's been very upfront. He's made a number of board game posts that this game is not fair. He, he also characterizes, you know, if you only like Euros, you're not going to like it. To a certain extent, I, I don't want to engage in sort of ad hominems. I often find, and I'm not accusing Jim of this, but I often find that sometimes the designer's like, well, you know, if you're a gamer of X type, then you're not going to appreciate my work. And so I, I'm a little bit loath to condone or endorse statements like that. But when he describes it explicitly as not fair, that seems like a accurate and reasonable characterization. and gives you a good sense of how the game feels. We commented before about how the rating feels a little bit weird, a little bit arbitrary. A punches B into the stratosphere, C profits, you know, a lot of the standard kind of multiplayer conflict game problems. But I will say the following two things about my second play of Cosmic Frog. Number one, if you recognize 
that everything is up for grabs. You know, there's land to on the table, and that you can get one way. There's land in someone else's throat. You can get that another way by kissing them with tongue. And then there's land in somebody else's uh, vault, which is available another way by punching them in the face real hard. And that helps clarify that all of the resources are in play at all times, and that helped me internalize where to go get points and, and what to do with myself. The second thing that became clear, and this is really, really important, I think, because I think games do need to be evaluated on their own terms. And I think that it's important not to apply unreasonable standards to a game. You often talk about things in terms of, does the game do what it sets out to do? I don't necessarily endorse that viewpoint. Certainly not always. But I do think that sometimes a bit of a realization can help put things in perspective. And the realization I had about Cosmic Frog was that we played a full four-player game of Cosmic Frog that had a beginning, middle, and an end, that had interesting trade-offs and some push your luck and some developments and some ups and downs in about 75 minutes. And that's the intended playtime of a normal game length of Cosmic Frog. Now, ours was a little bit truncated by virtue of the fact that there, the end game is determined by some random tempo considerations. What gets destroyed and when will determine when the game ends. And we had a, a, a st an early influx of game-ending conditions that led to a somewhat earlier end than normal. But it was still 75 minutes with all new players. And we all get to do cool stuff. By that metric... I think that it's hard to be too unkind to Cosmic Frog. If this were a two-hour game that was capricious and unfair and occasionally arbitrary, I think it would be entirely reasonable to throw the rest of the brilliant elements a little bit into sharper contrast or, or question a little bit to, to what extent how successful it was in those other design elements. But I have to say, having now played two games of Cosmic Frog and thoroughly enjoyed both of them, I'm willing to tell that voice in the back of my head that's talking about how unfair and arbitrary and capricious a lot of these things to shut up. To shut up and go jump around the map and go swallow a swamp and that's catch right. another frog in the just, face. Just enjoy the ride, Mark. Exactly. You're, you're a two-mile-high frog. Just just be one with the cosmos and, and fill your gullet. Exactly. And I again, the bar to getting there, I think, will vary based on a variety of features. Barrier to entry in terms of rules, barrier to entry in terms of cost, barrier to entry in terms of game length. And I have to say that Cosmic Frog is now nearly at the final stages of winning me over. I was first a Cosmic Frog, little tadpole. I'm now maturing. I'm losing my Cosmic Frog tail is what I'm saying. We're going to have to come up with a playlist to listen to while we play Cosmic Frog because I can think of some, you know, definitely essential music that needs to be playing in the background while you're soaring through the air as a gigantic frog well froggy did according and he did ride how about Hugh? how about huey dewey and louie how, how how did the table how do they seem to feel to like the game uh they thought that it was extremely capricious and unfair <laughs> i see so you were picking on everyone gotcha yes but that's the thing that is how one needs to play cosmic frog and you and i have both remarked particularly in terms of huey dewey and louie that sometimes there's a degenerate group dynamic amongst these players, whereby it has to be a game where conflict is permitted, and conflict will only be joined on the last turn of the game. And if you join conflict in the early turns of the game, you are regarded as a bully, and they will not reciprocate. This is These are not the context in which Cosmic Frog shines. They thought the game was interesting, they enjoyed lots of elements of the game, and they thought that it was fun, but they were very much closer to my uh, reflections of last week, which is, eh, this game seems awfully unfair. You have to engage in as much conflict as possible. Again, all resources are in play at all times. Just because it's in someone else's throat doesn't mean I should leave it alone, or even regard it as less accessible than what's lying on the table. 
I don't know if this is a perspective that everyone can adopt. And now I'm starting to verge into fellyisms of, you know, this is who the game is for and this is who the game is not for. But I, I'm willing to assert that if you demand that a 60 to 75 minute game that is as delightful and as engaging and as novel as Cosmic Frog also necessarily be finely balanced with an inch of its life, I am sympathetic to the desire for a game to have it all. But I am willing to forgive Cosmic Frog its flaws. I am willing to step out of my gaming comfort zone and and enter Jim Felly's strange and crazy and beautiful universe when the game elements come together. And for me, that has mostly been Door the Lesser Houses, as far as Jim Felly is concerned, that I still think is my favorite game of his. But man, Cosmic Frog is sufficiently amazing in that it causes amazement. It is sufficiently awesome in that it provokes awe that I am willing to overcome its not inconsiderable design elements that, that are not to my taste and that I think are actually structural problems. So my second play of Cosmic Frog, I'm willing to state with confidence, is not going to be my last but I do agree increasingly that it is group dependent and you have to play it quote unquote properly, which is to say knives out by which I mean tongues out and with constant aggression and the recognition that sometimes things are just not going to turn out in your favor. Terrain in another frog's gullet is proven tasty terrain. Therefore, it must be my terrain. <laughs> Pre-digested and therefore extra easy to swallow. Exactly. Very much like fast food. So, so that was Cosmic Frog by Jim Felly at Devious Weasel. I'm looking forward to the official release, especially so I can delight in the marvelous artwork on the cards. Such wonderful frogs. Anyway, I think it's safe to say, as I, as I mentioned, I am now won over by Cosmic Frog, and I am looking forward to future playings. So, Mark, you and I got to play a game called Traintopia. This is a game I had already talked about earlier, or I'd already seen earlier, and I already asked you to find me a copy of this game. Because it has a lot of elements that I really enjoy. It's a it's like a, a train track building game that is a tile laying game. That is, you draft stuff from the center and you build this, you know, this track and you're connecting routes together. And I really wanted to try this. And thankfully it came out on Tabletopia. Yeah, Traintopia on Tabletopia. I sense a conspiracy. I know. What an awful, you know, mix, right? Does Totally shouldn't have been on that particular platform. But that being said... This is going to come up a lot in things I'm going to talk about. I'm wondering, is it a good thing that games deliver exactly what you think they're going to deliver? Like, you read a rule book, <laughs> I think this game's going to feel and play like this. And it exactly plays out exactly like that. And sometimes that is great. And sometimes it's a little disappointing because you're hoping that there'll be a little bit more there or something that comes out of the game that you didn't think, you know, is in the rule book. You know, so like you read the skull rule book and you'll go, or, or cockroach poker and you're like, oh, and you'll want, not want to play it from reading the rule book. And it's not until the game actually starts playing out that you realize, you know, there's so much more there. Minor digression. And to go back to Cosmic Frog, that's one of the elements of Jim Felly's games that are so unusual. You read the rule book to a Jim Felly game and you're like, I have no idea how this is going to play out which is definitely stands apart from a lot of other games, especially a lot of other Euros, because after you're in the hobby for a few years and you've read a lot of rule books, uh, you're exactly right. You read a rule book and you think, I know exactly how this is going to work. And you can see the experience layout before you. Sometimes that's good. Sometimes that's bad. And in the context of Traintopia, did you think it was a good or a bad thing? I think it was a good thing. I liked how it played out. You're, you're like you said, you're drafting, either you're drafting tiles or meeples from the center and you can only have one meeple of each color. They, you know, they give them all sorts of different names like, uh, tourist and commuters and all this, but it all boils down to they all have to be different colors. So it can only be one color per track. And then you trace, you know, the, 
the, you trace down your track and you're going to, you know, score as many points as that particular color scores you. And then at the end of the game, there's all sorts of other stuff that you're going to get. You can put mailbags on the track or trains on the track, or uh, you can collect money that's going to let you get special tiles and or do other stuff. And I think all in all, I think it's a fantastic, you know, gateway game into these other types of more complicated stuff. I'm glad you enjoyed it, Walker. Well, I can see that you you, you loved it as well. Yeah. Well, it's got tile lane and drafting and, and, you know, I'm not saying it's the greatest game of all time, but it, I don't think it had any egregious parts to it. I heard you very distinctly. You just finished saying Traintopia is the single greatest game ever made. It is the finest apogee of human culture and industry. No, uh, look, so Traintopia does have two things that I normally like, which is to say tiling and drafting, but it does them both in what I find to be the laziest and worst ways. When it comes to, I, I didn't hate Traintopia. It just didn't do anything for me. When it comes to tiling, I vastly prefer a tiling game where all the tiles are being laid in a collective board where you're directly interacting with other people, whether it's in terms of blocking or building something neat, whether this is as simple as Carcassonne or as complicated as Tigers and Euphrates. In Traintopia, you're all building your own little train networks and there's no bumping up against anything. And so the placement restrictions are entirely in terms of building your own thing. And so that's not my preferred way to do tile placement in the first sense. And the way you get player interaction is through drafting. And I've commented before that drafting can either be a really good way of introducing some sort of cutthroat competition, most pointedly in games such as Fairy Tale, or even somewhat indirectly in cases of less tight hate drafting experiences, but you're still very conscious of what everyone else needs in the case of things like Blood Rage or It's a Wonderful World or games like that. Traintopia just felt like the most lazy form of resource distribution imaginable. Okay, we need to get people to have tiles. We need to have people to get meeples. And by the way, I blame you for depriving me of the thematic elements of naming the different colored meeples different things, but setting all that aside. And so Traintopia says, oh, well, we'll just have, we'll just have people draft them. I paid zero attention to what anyone else is drafting. I didn't care. It didn't seem to impact my ability to play well. Maybe this is just part of the alienation of playing games in a digital platform, because I'm usually not very good at paying attention to lots of moving parts there. But honestly, it just felt to me like a lot of the standard kind of intro Eurogaming stuff, where you take a couple of, of, of tried-and-true Eurogame mechanisms, blanch them down to their least offensive, least engaging versions, and send it out the door, and it works, and nothing else. And the catch-up mechanism at the end was fantastic, where it's like you actually add up all your points just before the last turn, and whoever has the least amount of points gets to draft, you know, first in the last round. And I was just like, I need to reread this. I, and, I, and honestly, I don't even think that it would be that ideal as a gateway game. It would definitely be accessible as a gateway game, but it has one of the things that a lot of gateway Euros have, which is scoring that is a couple steps too complicated for its own good. So again, if you compare this to a game like Carcassonne, where after your first play, you understand how scoring works, even in the context of farms, resolving the farms might be a little bit difficult, but you understand how they work. Here, uh, I didn't quite internalize how all the scoring worked until halfway through the game. And if an experienced gamer with an intro game can't quite rock the scoring immediately, then that's probably an indication that it's a little bit rougher than it needs to be. So look, I didn't, I'm sounding awfully negative on Traintopia. You're absolutely right. It's perfectly pleasant. It's very accessible in a lot of ways, but it didn't do anything for me and I was not particularly engaged by it. And it's published by Board and Dice Games and the designer's name, I, I, I apologize, sir. 
I think we should just stop and move on. It, it is it is designed by a, a a person who is no doubt very talented, but whose name is not pronounceable by us. I'll agree with that. Moving on then. I got to play Carolus Magnus again. And as somebody who loves history, I thought it was important to do a little bit of research. You know, the wargamer in me always wants to get the historical background. So Carolus Magnus is about uh, Charlemagne, also known as Big Carol, also known as Chucky Mags, also known as Carrie Big Big, also known as Karuli Maguli. So in the second play of Karuli Maguli, we had a very good time grappling with the strangeness of the area majority. We talked about how we like Leo Colavini and his strange approaches to area majority and area control. And this is very much getting under my skin in a good way. I'm, I'm, I'm finding these different elements fascinating because, in part, this is one of those games where I'm reliably terrible. And I find, like a lot of gamers, I find those things fascinating. If I'm unable to do anything but become, uh, but be dead last with a bullet every time I play, something interesting might be going on here. Not necessarily, but possibly. And that is, I think, what's going on with Carrie Big Big. And I think like, after I played the first time, I'm like, okay, okay, putting cubes on the map is a mistake. It's all about controlling the different colors. You got to build up the tableau, put cubes on the map, very small amount. So I come into the second game feeling all very proud of myself. It's like, ah, I know what to do. You got now. it. I got it. I got it. I got this. And sure enough, I just pumped cubes into my tableau. And I saw other people in early turns putting cubes on the map. I said, oh, those fools. They don't know the way of Chucky Mags. I know how this is going to work. No, no, no. They completely destroyed me. It wasn't even close. And so I, 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 I have to think about it. This is, this is really a fascinating game of incredibly simple rules and very interesting dynamics in terms of how the board state evolves and how, in terms of how your control of that board state evolves. I'm very much looking forward to my subsequent playings. It's available on yukata.de in a very reasonable implementation, very low uh, barrier. Unfortunately, the Yukata implementation doesn't allow for the variant whereby you draft. And so I'd very much like to get a hand on my own copy so I can play the drafting variant, which removes a lot of the randomness and also increases the importance of turn order. But I'm having a great time with Big Carol. I recommend it highly. Careless Magnus is a winner. There are rumblings of a reprint, but that was a while ago before the world ended, and we don't really know whether whether and how that, that's going to be. But when and if that happens, I'm definitely going to jump on it. And in the interim, I might get a used copy anyway because they're enough on the secondary market. Highly recommended Careless Magnus. I got to play Wingspan again because, you know, with the Golden Geek Awards being out and it being nominated for so many, including Historical War Game of the Year, I wanted to see, you know, I wanted to get another play of it in just to see if there's something that I missed. It was enjoyed by everyone who played it. It was, but like I said, it was just, it was exactly what I got from the rule book. It was exactly what I got from my first initial plays of it. It is a very interesting engine builder, tableau builder, but doesn't really bring much to the table even the theme you know it looks nice but it it doesn't interact with the mechanisms whatsoever what are you talking about you can have an owl egg and a vulture egg collectively hatch a titmouse that theme 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 anyway perfectly pleasant game hopefully it does well in historical war game of the year (laughs) that is wingspan by elizabeth hardgrave and stonemeyer games as robert browning said one taste of the old ways sets all to right I got to play Successor's 3rd Edition. Successor's 3rd Edition is one of my favorite historical war games, although it's not really a consim because it's it's largely a fantasy setup. It's about the wars of the Diadochi after the death of Alexander the Great, and it is a marvelous, marvelous multiplayer conflict game. All the troops on a map games, all the multiplayer war games, of all of them, Successor's 3rd Edition is my favorite. 
And I used to play it semi-regularly every few months with my friends back when I lived in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And so I t decided to take advantage of, number one, my newfound exploration of Vassal, best online electronic gameplay implementation ever for all things of all time. And number two, the fact that we're in isolation, so it's easier to schedule things like this. And so I got together with three of my old friends from Massachusetts to play Successors 3rd Edition. And it was glorious. It was a very short game because, again, I, I seem to lately have been playing very, very badly. And so I was unable to pull my weight in terms of constraining the leader from taking it over the finish line for a premature end. But I have to say that of those dynamics of we all need to cooperate to stop the leader, Successor's 3rd Edition is sufficiently dynamic that it does not devolve into a perennial kill Dr. Lucky problem of we have to stop whoever's in the lead from winning. These flashpoints and these inflection points arise, but they don't define the entirety of the game. And so there's an ebb and flow, and there's a marvelous dynamism that goes on. The movement rules for Successor's are marvelous. It has that lovely ops versus event tension. And when you use those ops, you can use them for a variety of things, including extra mobility or recruiting other units or getting political control it is a beautiful game of interlocking systems where everything fits and everything works now there's a couple little bits of chromy nonsense but honestly in terms of complexity i found the comments about the complexity of successors third edition to be overblown the fourth edition is going to be published soon-ish by phalanx i have no opinions about that yet although i have signed up to get my own copy I can say that the Vassal implementation of Successor's 3rd Edition is very good, and it was very pleasant if you have enough real estate on your screen to do it. I just pulled out a, a, an old monitor, hooked it up to my laptop, and then I had two screens, and that aided things considerably. And if you're even remotely interested in multiplayer conflict games and how to deal with some of the standard victory problems in them, or even some of the things that I just groused about in terms of things like Cosmic Frog, I would encourage you to take a look at Successor's 3rd Edition because it is a fascinating, fascinating game, and the way that it solves a lot of those problems is definitely a case study. I put it right up there with a very different game, Senji, which is more or less Euro, but in terms of how it has these different victory conditions on top of a Troops on a Map game that really make things satisfying and interesting and dynamic. I adore Successor's 3rd Edition. I always have ever since I first tried it several years ago, and being able to play it on Vassal was a delight, and I highly recommend giving it a shot if you can. That was Successor's 3rd Edition. I've talked about Scythe lots on this podcast. I've even talked about playing the the new digital implementation but this week i actually played the digital implementation against real people i've only been playing against ai opponents from here but now i'm playing against real people and you know what when you play against real people and when they're anonymous and they don't see other person they can be really mean <laughs> did they hurt your feelings walker they didn't hurt my feelings but saying you know you can i didn't it did this didn't happen to me it happened to another player at the table where in Scythe, you can almost block someone out of the map by, like, sort of surrounding their exit to their thing. In a, in a normal face-to-face -face game, you probably just wouldn't do that because, you know, you want the person to have fun and you want everyone at the table to enjoy themselves. And usually it doesn't it doesn't age or win. So you just sort of, you know, you push them back and, you, you know, you retreat after a while. This didn't happen. This person stayed there and kept them out of the game for the entire game. It was it was quite nasty. <laughs> the other amazing thing that happens in Scythe, the digital edition, is the fact that it's set up that everyone has their own timer, just like in chess. So you have 10 minutes 
to do your entire game of scythe so when it's your turn the timer starts and it doesn't stop until you click end turn and if your 10 minutes is used up then you're out and man it's like a five player game done in 45 minutes it is amazing i How? love it you just bloop you just pass all your future turns yes wow Okay, but I've I have not seen that happen in the in the about six games that I played against real people online this week. I did not see anyone run at a time. I think but that being said, I think only three of the games were ten minute timers, and the rest were fifteen minute timers. But other than that, it is amazing. I, I I'm thinking about how to do that in real you know real life scythe. You know, maybe we have like little timer apps on our phones, or you know, Amazon up some real chess timers just to see you know get that get people ready to have their turn ready to go because inside you know because you know you can't take the same action you took last turn except for some factions you should have your turn ready to go absolutely especially like in a five-player game where four other people are, are going because you know it's the same deal with all the other players they can't all take move actions over and over again so the board state's not going to change you should be ready to go almost right away and to get a five-player game done in 45 minutes or less is super fun the other amazing thing it does is that everyone has an elo score you start with a certain base amount and if you drop out of games or do x then your elo score is going to go down and when you set up a game you can say i only want people with an elo score from like 900 to 1500 and if your elo score is too low then you cannot join those games you are convincing me more and more that i do not want to play this implementation because nothing, there you go nothing saps the enjoyment for me out of an environment or out of the game than knowing that everything is going to be ranked in scored i read about people who have game groups where they record wins and losses and there are leaderboards and rankings and things like that and the only thing that i think of when i read about this is i never wish to play games with you i recognize it's a legitimate way to approach your hobby time i just want no part of it all right and that is scythe the digital implementation by the knights of unity and asmodee digital I got to play PAX Renaissance 2nd Edition. It is still on Kickstarter, but it will probably not be on Kickstarter anymore by the time you listen to this broadcast. I was curious about some of the rules changes, about some of the card changes, and some of the new cards in PAX Renaissance 2nd Edition. And Ion Game Design and Sierra Madre Games have made 2nd Edition available on both a tabletop simulator mod and in a vassal mod. Now, I played the tabletop simulator mod. This is an interesting difference, in case you're curious, because the TTS mod has the old art, which I vastly prefer. I find it much, much easier to read, maybe just because I'm more used to it, but I find it more functional and more pleasing. The Vassal mod has the new art style, which I am not accustomed to and don't like as much, so I decided to play with the tabletop simulator mod, although I think... The card setup in both is the same, although I haven't scrutinized the change logs to see which ones have been updated more recently. At any rate, the salient thing that I, the salient experience that I had of playing Pax Renaissance Second Edition wasn't even so much the Second Editionness of it, but rather that the default setup for Second Edition is to just mix up all the cards all at once. Up until now, I've been playing Pax Renaissance the way that Cole Worley recommends you play Pax Renaissance, which is to say you take the base game cards, take some number of expansion cards, and then include that in your set, usually somewhere around two. So in any given game, the vast majority of cards are going to be from the default set, but you're going to have a couple of the expansion cards. The reason for this is twofold. Number one, the expansion cards, are some of them are downright weird. They have special powers and game-up-ending conditions. And number two, it helps ensure that the mix of prestige icons 
is relatively pre preserved because the different win conditions are dependent on there being certain cards available in the card mix. If no Muslim prestige enters the card decks, well, then you're going to have a bit of a problem. If no wives enter the card decks, that might make things a little bit weird. Anyway, so mostly my experience was, wow, this is a lot of expansion cards in this card mix because I'm not accustomed to playing that way. And the specific additions to the second edition rule set, which is to say additional theocratic possibilities and slight changes to how repression works, didn't really enter into things too much. But I will say this. It is increasingly the case, I just want to broaden the discussion that past Pax Renaissance, because I still adore Pax Renaissance, very, very keen to explore second edition further. I don't know if it will obsolete first edition for me, but time will tell, and I have many tools made available for me, and that's the overall point. There's a certain model of distribution that's being posited here that's been very, very common amongst historical war games and is becoming more common elsewhere, which is to say, what you do is you make the game available as a print-and-play for free to anybody... And you make sure that the digital adaptations are free for everybody. And then you try to sell a deluxe product. Now, this was done recently as well by PAX Premier 2nd Edition. PAX Premier 2nd Edition, in its relaunch, made everything Creative Commons license. You can go and download the full final graphic files for PAX Premier 2nd Edition right now for $0.00 and go print it out yourself. I was first exposed to this in the modern era when Secret Hitler got released. Secret Hitler was a free print-and-play for everybody, but then when the commercial version came out, they decided to make it as blinged out as possible. Lovely little wooden components, lovely little envelopes, and so forth. And honestly, this mode of distribution pleases me right down to the ground. You get to try it for free or very close to free, but if you like the thing, the final edition is going to be very, very high quality and a lovely little piece of art. Now, I don't know what PAX Renaissance 2nd Edition is going to look like when it's published, but all the print-and-play files are freely available, the living rules are freely available, all the digital implementations are freely available. And this displays a confidence in their work and a willingness to involve the community, and I'm very much looking forward to seeing how this goes. I've been very critical in the past of Sierra Madre for their for a lot of the writings that they include in their rule books, for a lot of their distribution problems, their shambolic Kickstarter fulfillment, their distribution issues, etc., etc., etc. But I fully applaud the fact that they're adopting this model, and I hope that it's preserved going forward. And so it was by virtue of that that I was able to try PAX Renaissance 2nd Edition, and I encourage anyone who either likes PAX Renaissance or has never played PAX Renaissance to, to do the same. Although, if you've never played PAX Renaissance, find somebody who's willing to teach it to you and set aside, I don't know, seven days for that to, to, to fully sink in. I guess that would be an accurate characterization. But kudos to Iron Game Design and Sierra Madre and to the Eklunds for doing this. I'm very grateful that they have let me play Pax Renaissance 2nd Edition like everybody else. And I will probably have more to follow once I've had a little bit more exposure to the system and can comment on the substantive changes rather than just the fact that there are tons of new cards. I did some solo gaming this week in the form of Fantastic Factories. It is this sort of tableau building where you're collecting resources and you're rolling dice and you're feeding these dice and resources into the cards to, you know, create these goods. And then you're trying to get X number of goods to be the, the, the sort of solo AI that, that gets played at the same time. And the, at the ease at which the, the solo variant goes off is amazing. It's, you just roll some dice up and you, they collect cards and you, and you stack them in the same colors of the dice. And if you roll equal to or lower than the number of dice, then they score victory points. And the way it built up, I thought was fantastic. 
The only problem I see is that I don't see a difference in playing with other people than I did playing the solo experience. Aha. Uh-huh. Because the, which is good and bad because that means the solo experience is exactly the same as the regular game. But the bad part is that there's really no player interaction. It's just trying to outbeat the other players and, and make your engine better. The only things that, the only things that weren't there is that some of the, the, people that you hire say you know you get x amount of energy and you have to give two energy to the other players and when you're doing that against the solo player then you just don't give out the extra energy and or cards or anything else so but other than that you can never get hurt by the other players it's mostly just getting an added benefit when they get a huge benefit you get a small benefit but anyway all in all the game i thought was great the art is fantastic i did an unboxing of this and a bunch of other stuff check it out on facebook just love the art style, love the ease of, you know, rolling, rolling the dice and manipulating the dice and the fact that you can only have 10 cards in your engine because if you get more than 10 cards, then that triggers the end of the game. So you have to really pick and choose which of those 10 cards you're going to have out because there's no way you can, you know, destroy them to make other cards. All in all, love Fantastic Factories, looking forward to showing it to, showing it to other people. That's put out by metafactory games i have to assume that they named the game in honor of you walker fantastic factories yes well why thank you mark i'm not i'm not sure what you're trying to say i'm trying to say that there's a superlative that you enjoy more than fantastic it's fantastic from my last day i have a dexterity game i talked about crazy tower before the fact that i was looking forward to it i got it in and like I said earlier, it's nice when a game plays out exactly like the rule book or exactly like how you feel. When it's your turn, you're always going to be placing a block on your turn. You're either going to play a uh, a tower card down first before you play the, the block, or you can just place the block right on the tower card. And it gets bigger and bigger, and you can totally manipulate where you're putting this tower card to make it harder for the next player, and it, this, this giant, weird t- tower starts forming. And... uh Yet another game I can't wait to show you. We had a great, great fun playing it here at the house, and it's going to be yet another hit at the table, I'm sure. I saw a picture of one of the towers that you were building, and I felt a pang of loneliness and envy that could only be described as incredibly unpleasant. It looked like it was a blast. I just have one very simple question. How does it deal with multiplayer, if at all? Well, it has the four different color of blocks and and you and you sort of succeed when you get rid of all your blocks and there's the different symbols that are on the cards like if you cover them up you get abilities i think they could have done a much better job at that it's mostly just pulling blocks and giving them back to the people so that now they have more blocks yet to put on again or or just manipulating the blocks i just thought they could have been a little more inventive on how they did you know the special abilities there but that's pretty well it so if player a causes the tower to topple what happens to players b c and d they all win it's sort of like i guess sort of like oh they have a point system as well you can add up how many blocks you have left type thing and then you can do a score that way but i think i would just do it cockroach poker style if you knock it over you are the sole loser everybody else wins fair enough that was my immediate question about the game i I wondered how how that would would shake out in multiplayer play and i'm gonna have to see how it works in practice because sometimes it doesn't quite work because that that's one of my complaints about most dexterity games the actual victory conditions don't really work too terribly well except of course for lupin louis praise be to the lupin one he the most perfect of the red biplane where the victory conditions make perfect sense especially if you play by the turn rules as everyone ought to thank you brother walker And those were the games that we played last week. Now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. 
So first of all, in the news, since we're all, you know, holed up in our little hovels and and can't go out and play with our good friends, and you ask mommy, can I go out and play? And she says no, because she's mean and evil. And embarrassed of you. I saw this game. It's called Block- Blockus. We've all played, or most of us have all played Blockus or some form of Blockus. This is called Blockus Puzzle. It came out a couple years ago, but still, the fact that it's very solo and it's very puzzly and something I... It's uh, just appealed to me. It's like you, you have, uh, in like some of the Blockus editions that has, you know, the plastic grid where you can slot in the pieces and it has a piece of paper that goes in behind it and creates this sort of puzzle has blocks already, you know, behind the grid. And it says, here's three shapes. You have to make them, you know, touch, you know, go around this loop somehow. And they, you know, the normal Blockus style where they can't directly they can only touch by the corners and you got to make it from one end to the other using only the shapes they tell you and it comes with all these different cards and different modes of play and i think it's something very interesting it was only like 15 dollars on amazon so i'm looking forward to giving it a try that's sorry but that's from nick hayes and mattel i have been waiting a very long time walker for the kickstarter for guards of atlantis 2 guards of atlantis is my favorite team strategy game it is my favorite moba game and moba games we both adore Guards of Atlantis is a masterwork. I have played Guards of Atlantis 2 twice using early components, and it is an improvement on an already brilliant game. And I've been waiting and waiting, and finally, by the time you hear this, it is live on Kickstarter. It is, or if you listen to it super early, you might have to wait a day. I, I, I'm so enthusiastic. I've seen the preview Kickstarter page. It's going to have twice as many characters. The characters have all been completely redone. A lot of the components have been redone from scratch. We've talked about Guards of Atlantis 2 several times over the course of the podcast. Don't have enough good things to say about it. And I cannot wait for it to hit the broader market. And I hope that it finds the success that it so richly deserves. Find it on Kickstarter, Guards of Atlantis 2. Buy five copies for yourself and then seven for each of your friends. Mark, normally I would be just as excited as you are. But I have found this other piece of news that just makes all other games semi-pointless. And I don't really care about anything but 40k risk at this point right now. <laughs> 40k risk coming out from OP games. I, this is something that I didn't notice. USAopoly changed their name to OP games. Yes. I guess, you know, I, 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 maybe I should pay attention more. Maybe I should talk to someone that's in the business. Why would you want to pay attention to that company? I know, right? USAopoly and Games Workshop has gotten together with uh, no designer credit. And <laughs> Sounds about right. Neither of them like to credit designers. Sur- surprisingly from USAopoly and Games Workshop, um, 40K Risk. You'd think that this had already come out before, but surprise, surprise, it has not. You know, they'll have a 40K Talisman, a 40K Monopoly. I confess 40... you're right. It is yeah. strange that there has not been a 40K Risk. And so so are you ready? Here it comes. Well, in my defense, I kind of assumed that there already was one, and I didn't care then, and I, I don't care now, so. What? So it seems like David Turtze is designing roughly half of the games that are up on Kickstarter this year, but there's only one that I really care about, and that is the Defense of Procyon 3. This is an asymmetric, four-player, team-based, kind of, sort of, almost war game thing being put out by our friends at PSC Games. PSC Games having published several iterations of Quartermaster General and the utterly amazing Blitzkrieg by Paolo Mori. And the Defense of Procyon 3 is going to be a little bit in the root mold in that every faction plays very differently using subsystems that the other factions don't. There's going to be a simultaneous air battle and land battle over the eponymous Procyon 3, I would imagine. 
this is another game where the rules and the tabletop simulator mod have already been made publicly available. I intend to play it as soon as I possibly can, but it's been on Kickstarter for a little while. It's already funded, and I'm very much looking forward to it, not only because I'm a big fan of David Torze, but I'm also a big fan of this kind of highly asymmetric troops on a map type games, especially when combined with team play. I really like high degrees of asymmetry combined with team play. That's one of the things that I really like about Space Cadets Dice Duel, for example, because you have to deal with your teammate, and I actually prefer it when you have not 100% internalized the rule systems that your teammate is working under. You also see this to a certain extent in Spirit Island, where you don't fully understand how all their cards work. Because I like that element of, of dynamism, and I like that element of cooperation, not just because it helps blunt sort of alpha gamer problems, but also just I like different systems working together when they're asymmetric in that way. So I'm very much looking forward to trying Defense of Procyon 3, and I'm very much looking forward to seeing the final product. Mark, there's a great game on Kickstarter right now. Just the look of it alone is pretty amazing. I'm not sure if I'm going to grab it or or want to play it, but just the look of this game alone, it uses, it's not by AEG, but it uses the same clear cards and deck building sort of thing. It's called Canvas, and it's you're, you're creating these, you know, crazy pictures with these overlay cards like a background and a couple subjects you know front and back and oh it's not about political organizing no no not at all you create these fantastic looking little dioramas or pictures whatever you want to call them and they all have you can see at the bottom where they have some sort of uh you know game mechanisms where you're building up the combos and stuff so it looks like it's going to be fairly interesting i'm going to look look forward to hopefully may 7 will pick it up i want to try it at least once but it's definitely something you want to at least look at. Very interesting to see. It's put out by R2i Games. And lastly, I've talked about My City by Reiner Knizia many times. If you go to Board Game Geek right now, they have a lot of pictures, spoiler pictures out there. So, you know, look at your own risk. But I'm looking more forward to trying out this game. It looks like it's right up my alley, just like the Blocus sort of thing I talked about. You're like, fitting in all these different shapes trying to surround certain things much like uh feast for odin you're trying to keep those you know those bonuses open so you're trying to surround them and not cover them up with certain shapes it also does what i love in take it to the limit where it has a a, a deck of cards that everyone's using you flip it open okay everyone has to place this color and this shape but everyone can place it on their own board wherever they want. So everyone's board's going to eventually turn out different, but everyone's using the same shape. So I'm looking forward to trying it out, and it's a legacy-type game, so we'll see how that goes. And that's My City by uh, some new designer, Reiner Knizia. And that is the news and why it doesn't matter. Now we're going to go on to our feature game. What is our feature game this week, Walker? Our feature game this week is Nemesis. Nemesis was put up by Adam Kopinski and Awaken Realms at 2018. Adam Kopinski has designed a couple of interesting games. One of them is Heroes, which was a kind of sort of almost but not really functional real-time game of throwing dice and special powers. And he's also designed swag favorite Lords of Hellas, which is one of our favorite troops in the map games of the past few years. Awaken Realms has done a number of things past Lords of Hellas. They didn't publish Heroes, but they did publish Lords of Hellas. They published Tinted Grail, which we mostly like with misgivings, but are looking forward to going back to again once life resumes its normalcy. They published This War of Mine and The Edge Downfall, which can, I, I think, are fair to say are, you know, largely unsuccessful experiments in my estimation. But one of the things that is very striking about Awaken Realms is they tend to always have very impressive miniatures. They tend to, uh, they, they've pioneered this uh, process by which they will kind of sort of Zenithal shade them for you called Sundrop. They've also sort of pioneered the distribution model whereby they 
expect to have a two-way fulfillment. You'll get the base game, and then about 17 years later, you might get all the expansions and stretch goals later. And if you aren't willing to pay for shipping twice, well, then you can just wait for the second shipment all at once. And honestly, just as a minor aside, I am perpetually confused as to why Awaken Realms seems to get a free pass. I remember when Cool Mini or Not announced they were going to do two-way fulfillment, and everyone acted as though the sky was falling and that they were the greatest grifters known to humankind. And Awaken Realms has been doing this, this kind of stuff for years and blowing past fulfillment deadlines on the reg, and nobody ever seems to criticize them for it. I'm not saying that every Kickstarter that uses two-way fulfillment or that blows past fulfillment deadlines deserves to have heaps of scorn put on them. They just seem to have a Teflon reputation when it comes to the broader internet population. I don't know why. I don't hate Awaken Realms. We adore Lords of Hellas. I just find it strange. Anyway, so Walker, why don't you give us an unhelpful summary of what one does in Nemesis? Well, Mark... Sometimes I tell little white lies for, you know, humor's sake, right? But <laughs> I can tell you I can tell you that this story that I'm about to tell you is something that actually happened because in in Nemesis, the map is completely hidden and you go you spend the most of the game going around revealing a map of a spaceship that you should already know. So I said, "Okay, I'll make up some sort of silly story about, you know, they come out of hibernation and the hibernation creates some sort of you know, memory loss. So they got to take a, you know, a spaceship tour. And then I stopped there. I said, okay, well, I better just check the rule book and see, you know, what kind of theme they use. So, so, um, you know, maybe it makes more sense. No, Mark, it's a uh, hibernation sickness and you have some sort of memory loss and you don't know what the ship looks like. So here we go. Hibernation and sickness has affected your memory, so you can't remember the layout of your ship. So guess what? It's time for a spaceship tour race around your ship, <laughs> looking for the room that's on your objective card. Then it's time to play Guess Who? Who wants to blow up the ship? Who wants to fly to Mars instead of Earth? Who wants to go back to bed? <laughs> oh, too late. You're dead. And that is Nemesis. I think you've actually been too kind. If the game had more of the guess who, I'd like it more. Because this is what the game promises you. Nemesis promises you a game of paranoia, of intrigue, of having to try to suss out what other people are doing and why. And in practice, in our experience, that just never manifests itself. With one very minor salient exception, I'll get to that later. Instead of intrigue, you have what exactly what you're talking about, this tour of the ship. You have to burn through this stack of tiles to find the room you need for your weird victory condition. I was going to say, the majority of the time it played out a lot like Gloomhaven. You remember the Gloomhaven mission cards where it says, oh, you have to open five doors or you have to be the first, you know, to get the killing blow on a monster or something like that. And you sort of like look over, it's like, oh, yeah, he did that because it's on his card. Or, you know what I mean? It's sort of like, oh, okay, I understand what he's doing or he's doing that because it just had the same feeling and it was the same emptiness as the Gloomhaven mission well, cards. Well, I think it's even worse because in Gloomhaven, those secret combat missions, there's a stack of those decks. And it took me, I'd say, about how. It's hard to remember, but at least half a dozen games before I feel like I'd seen all of them, or at least I'd seen all of them instantiated. So if someone did something weird, I could assume that it was because of their private battle goal, but I, did, I couldn't recite the text of the, the card to you. Whereas in Nemesis, halfway through our second game, when someone did a single move, I'm like, oh yeah, I know what their victory condition is. Because the stack of victory conditions is so parsimonious, it's ridiculous. 
Yeah, not only that, in Gloomhaven, it's just sort of an aside thing, right? Yes. It really doesn't matter. Whereas in Nemesis, it is the main, almost, you could arguably say the main part of the game. It's like your whole mission. It's what you're trying to do for the whole game. And I wish I could say this comes as a surprise because Nemesis is a semi-cooperative game where perhaps everyone will win, perhaps no one will win. And early on in the Kickstarter campaign a few years ago, people were dealing with the playtest components and they said, hey, guys, Awaken Realms, some of these victory conditions seem way out of whack. Some of them seem trivially easy. Some of them seem borderline impossible. And some of them interact with the random layout of the ship in very unsatisfying ways. Could you care to comment? And I remember that the public comments basically took some form of, at best, we'll, we'll fix it in the final version, which, you know, is reasonable, because what else are you going to say about a playtest version? And or, trust us, guys. Trust us, trust us. We've played a lot of games. We've played many different games and we know what we're doing. Guess what? You don't know what you're doing. These victory conditions don't work. And honestly, they're, they're, it's the same old problem we've been having with semi-co-op games for decades, most saliently in things like Dead of Winter, where the universe of available victory conditions does not interact with the game state and the player agency in a satisfying way at all. And you're left with something that feels grotesquely random. Yeah, well, that's what happened in our first plane, right? We had three people in our first game. I raced around the ship. I completed the objectives of both other players, and they escaped, whereas I didn't get to complete my own objectives, like not knowing that I completed their objectives, and and, and then ended up dying at the end. Absolutely. And I'm very thankful that you did all that legwork for me. It was very much appreciated. Speaking of dying quickly, I just wanted to go, you can, you can die of fire... You can die because there's so many malfunctions on your ship that it just explodes. You can be eaten by aliens. You can have an unwanted alien pregnancy. You can be, you can go to the wrong planet, you know, and, and that makes you lose the game as well. Uh, the engines, when you finally decide to leave, the engines could not be working and therefore explode. Or someone sets the self-destruct mechanism off and the ship also explodes. So these are all the things that are constantly going against you in every game of Nemesis. Honestly, all that part didn't bother me much because those are just background elements of, you know, the challenge. There are all these hurdles you need to surmount, and those are at least relatively constant for everybody. In order to succeed in your victory conditions, you need to survive. And there are a number of different ways to survive, and that part was fine. The trick is, again, about the, the, the way the different victory conditions interact with the rest of the game state. For example, one of the victory conditions you might pull, and, and in fairness, you pull two and you pick one of them once there's a certain inflection point of the game. But one of the victory conditions you might pull is kill a certain character. Well, here's the problem with that. There are two major problems with, with that entire category of victory condition. Number one, you cannot engage in direct aggression. Everything is indirect. So maybe you find a grenade that you can chuck into the adjacent room, or maybe not. Or maybe the other character just happens to run into the queen randomly, and the queen takes care of them for you. Oh, great. You win. Congratulations. Or maybe that other character just never puts themselves in danger for a variety of reasons. Guess what? That's hard. But then, then there's a question about what about that other character? Say I'm in the game and someone else pulls the kill mark objective. Well, my game just became twice as hard because if they find a way to impede me, this is a significant uh, restriction on what I'm able to do. The objective to kill me might or might not be in the game. And can you honestly expect me to have any faith in anything remotely resembling balance in a game like this where there's a chance that someone might be out to completely destroy me or there might be another character with victory conditions that are entirely sympathetic to my own? It's, it's completely off the rails. 100% agree. There are some good, there are some saving graces I found in this game, though. 
I'm going to go over some of the because I do the good points first, Mark. You I know, know you, you do the points do first, right. Walker. I know you do. You you alluded to this already that there are, there are certain points of the game, things are going to trigger. And I thought that was a great game mechanism. Like as soon as the first alien comes onto the board, that's when you get to choose one of your two objective cards. When half the game is finished, that's when the hibernation chambers open up and you're allowed to use them. Or the fact that when someone initiates the self-destruct, you have to wait till, you know, it's at a certain point of the countdown before the, the escape pods open up. Now, when I, when I wrote this down, it sounded kind of odd. You'd think in a spaceship, when someone initiates the self-destruct, the escape pods might be accessible immediately. <laughs> that might be something they might want to change in future designs of the spaceship because self-destruct bad, escape <laughs> pods good. I agree with you. All of those elements about the ship and the way the ship systems work on that level, I thought was really cool. And just navigating the different conditionals about when which system might be viable, because again, you need to be able to survive. And survival requires that you're either on an intact ship at the right destination, or you make it out of an escape pod. And on the face of it, the way those things interact, I found very interesting. The other thought, the other part I thought was cool is that there's ways you can find weaknesses in the aliens that are in infesting this ship. You can bring like an alien. You all have to bring it to the same sort of scientific medical lab. You can bring an alien corpse there, or a corpse of one of the one of your friends, or an alien egg. And if you bring it there and analyze it, you get to see some weaknesses in the aliens. Which makes it easier to kill them. I thought that was kind of interesting. Mostly I got annoyed at that because of, again, how it interacted with the victory conditions. In the, in the last game that we played, I pulled a character that can do that lab analysis anywhere, so I didn't need to haul anything anywhere. And one of my victory conditions was do this particular piece of analysis. So it was laughably simple for me. And sometimes, again, if you have these victory conditions or about discovering certain weaknesses, someone else is just going to do it incidentally for you. It's like, oh, great. Thank you for doing that thing for me. It's, it's a beneficial action that benefits everybody. It will arbitrarily lead to some players profiting more than others. And so, yes, conceptually, it's cool. And in terms of how it impacts the combat, that's cool. But again, the victory conditions just sour almost everything in the game. Exactly. Like you said, I, I think the, the idea of it was cool, but it does not implement very well. Just like we said in the actual game, suddenly the aliens were more susceptible to fire. Like we had a couple aliens already in the, on the board that were in fire and they they might have taken damage, not taken damage, but because some, something we did over here on the ship, suddenly this damage, this fire was doing more damage to them for some unknown reason. It made no sense whatsoever. I like your explanation. One of us got on the intercom and started psyching them out. Do you feel yes, that? Yes. Is that hot? <laughs> That's what is that too hot for you, alien? <laughs> oh. Anyway. Another cool part of the game is, is that you can get these contamination cards. There's there's an action. I'm going to go into the actions action point system in a minute, but it's it's uh, you have this deck of cards and you can get these contamination cards, which are going to bog down your deck. But not only that is that at certain points of the game you can scan these cards. Like in real life, you put this little much like a decrypto or any of these old old kid things you had you put this red weird Cellophane. filter over and it tells you it tells you if you're infected or you're not infected and i thought that was you know could lead to some interesting things like i didn't think it at the end of the game it was so great but if they if they made it easier to interact with that during the game i thought it would have been much cooler 
that honestly was the chief source of tension in a game that was devoid of tension and heavy on tedium. As you're getting these contamination cards, you know that they're minor, that they're a minor nuisance as it is, but you don't know if they're just a minor nuisance or if they're an indication that you've become a host of an alien parasite. That part was great. That part I really liked. And they did a great part in the digital implementation too. The fact that normally, you know, you just throw it on this thing and it would tell you, you know, clean or infested, right? But it actually, you put it on and it would actually, you know, have this little timer where they like sort of build up the tension whether or not you're, and then it would go bing and tell you. I thought they did a great job. There. It was very cute, yes. And they, they, the game has weapon crafting in it. So when you picked your character, they gave you these personal items that you could build. So you, you could search around the ship and you could, you know, jerry-rig together these, your own personal items which were usually kind of cool. And they also had like a common, common items like out in the equipment area that you could, you know, build as well. So I thought, you know, weapon crafting in general is kind of cool. Even though you really don't have time to do it in the game, I still thought it was a nice touch. And then we're going to, now I'm going to talk about the action system. So in this game, you get 10 cards. You're going to draw five of them a turn. And almost all of the common actions cost one card. And then there's only one common action that costs two, and that's moving silently. Not only that, on the actual cards themselves, they all have special abilities as well. And in some games like this, you're going to have special ability cards that you just never use, and they're useless. But the fact that you can, you know, spend these cards to do other actions, I thought it was great. And then when you actually needed these, sometimes they were in your hand, you got to use them, and they just weren't, you know, bogging up your hand the whole time. I just thought the whole interaction with the cards was usually fairly interesting because every character had one or two cards that was unique to them i thought they could have done a better uh, you know a little bit better there i thought a lot of the cards were very similar between all the characters and i thought if they implemented some sort of way to get more cards into your into your deck or a way to upgrade them i thought that would be a little more interesting but i thought overall i really liked the action system i wish there was a greater tension between keeping your cards for their unique character effects versus ditching them for the common actions. You know, some something like the ops versus event tension in all uh, in card driven war games, but that didn't really manifest. Like for example, if you're in a room that is malfunctioning and oh by the way, many 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 of the rooms will malfunction. It's just the nature of the beast and you really need to use the room, either you have the repair in your hand or you don't. And if you do, you're going to ditch it and repair the room if you need to use the room. Or you're not going to, or you're not going to have the repair in your hand, in which case you just have to wait to the next turn. There's no two ways about it. And so I always felt that the what cards to use for what was always trivially transparent and it didn't really lead to an interesting tension. I do think that there were lots of opportunities for character asymmetry that were sometimes explored better than others. So there are six different characters in the base game. There are six different Kickstarter characters and they each have their own 10 card deck. There's a lot of overlap between all the cards, but as you say, each character has some of their own unique cards. Some of them I thought were more interesting and more unique than others like the captain feels like a captain gets to go direct people and go to tell people to do things and but strangely enough the captain's also the character that has the best longevity in combat because they can reload their weapon autonomously whereas the soldier is always scrounging for ammo and anyway uh so i liked the card system sometimes but much of the time it just felt felt like well you have five action points to do every turn go ahead and use five action points There was an attempt in the game to give you a sense of cooperation because as you're moving around the ship, you're building up all these noise tokens that's going to attract the aliens. But if you move to a part of the ship that one of your teammates was already in, then you were sort of safe. You didn't have to worry about, you know, creating noise. 
but I, I felt as though there was always, there was no time to actually utilize this sort of mechanism because you had to spread out so quickly. You really needed to explore the whole ship before, you know, all of these things built up and either killed you or blew the ship up. So I don't, I didn't think as though there was enough time to utilize this, you know, cooperation that you could have had in the game. It's also very dependent on turn order. If I happen to be going after somebody moving into a new room, they're either going to spawn an alien or they're not. If they spawn an alien, I know I can avoid that room. If they don't spawn an alien, well, I know I can move into that room safely. And so the sort of Pathfinder character, the one who is forced to go first, purely by virtue of the fact that they're earlier in turn order, kind of gets the shaft arbitrarily. That's all I have for good mar points, Mark. Do you have anything to add for good points? I didn't think so. Moving on. No, oh, okay, no, hold on. <laughs> Awakened Realms can make a good mini. The components are nice. I've seen them in person. Most of our plays were with the uh, sanctioned tabletop simulator mod. But with the exception of the medic and some of the other boob-heavy cre uh, characters, I don't know why a combat medic was wearing basically a swimsuit with massive tit windows. That is not, I think, how medics tend to operate. And yet, again, during the campaign, Awakened Realms were the most dismissive jerk faces about it. It's like, oh, what, you don't like looking at women? Like, ugh, come on. It is time for the industry to evolve and grow the hell up. But anyway, other than the medic, I think the artwork is is by and large good. I like the uh, the, the, the minis, and I have to say that H.R. Giger should definitely get a cut. So true. So, some bad points, because we've already sort of said that the game plays out sort of the same way every time you're going to play it because your objectives are relatively the same. You've got to find some room and bring something there or make sure you have something when you leave the ship, right? One, one combination or the other, it's relatively the same. You're going to be, you know, zipping around this ship, doing these things. And I thought the setup of the game was a little heavy for, for something that's so samey. We, even though we played on the digital thing where it, where it set up the whole thing automatically, it's the fact that you have to lay out, the the whole map and put counters on the whole thing there's multiple decks like equipment decks that need to be set up event decks alien attack decks there's an alien bag that you have to build and then you have to uh you know do after character selection setting up all your character cards it's quite a heavy setup game for what you get out of it absolutely i was quite surprised after playing the first time i was there were certain things that i was i was ready to accept that the game might fail at I, we both have a healthy skepticism of semi-co-op games, and sure enough, it fails on a lot of the standard semi-co-op problems. But I was not expecting, even after reading the rules, for this to be such an old-school kind of run-around-a-map, flip-up-the-tiles, try-to-find-the-room-you're-looking-for kind of vibe. Whether it's Betrayal at House on the Hill at its worst, Room 25, or the old Dungeon Quest games, all of these games where you're just running around rooms, flipping over random stuff. It's like, oh, this isn't the room I need. This isn't the room I need. I gotta move. I gotta move. Oh, okay, well, I'm done for my turn. I'll move twice next turn, too until I eventually find where I need to go, and then I'll just go and do some sort of elaborated fetch quest. It's tired, it's random, it's tedious, and it's silly. If you look at the way that a lot of other games do random map tiles, it could either be something like Mage Knight, where the random map tiles just add contours to the fundamental dynamics of the game. You're not looking for a specific kind of map tile in a sea of, of, of map tiles. Or something like Claustrophobia, where you seed the map tiles properly and you have an emergent geography that's kind of interesting. In Nemesis, you just have this pointillistic bit of nonsense, like, well, I'm looking for the armory. This isn't the armory. Okay, I guess I'll go to this other place, etc., etc. Rinse, wash, repeat. If you'll recall, another way to do it, in Post-Human Saga, the bit in Post-Human Saga that we really liked was it took this... It 
this notion of building the map seriously. And it said, can we build this random map in an interesting way? And it came up with a kind of an interesting Euro tile layer vibe to it. Rather than, again, just take, here's your stack of random tiles, put them out randomly and hope you find the one you want to find. The other thing that I thought was odd, there was some like fairly mundane tasks that you had to go through like several steps to get to. Whereas if they just use like a single multi-card you know you know the alien you know ambushes you and then you draw like the same card for the attack and then another card whereas if you know you just flipped up one card and had all the information like a multi-use card i think it would have just saved so much time yeah i agree despite the fact that i liked the components and i liked a lot of the art it was definitely a game that could have benefited from a little bit of streamlining maybe a couple fewer stacks of cards maybe a couple fewer steps to resolve simple things i agree i really it's, it's one of these things where when you read the rule book, it sounds like it's going to work very fine. But when you actually start playing it, it did like the sound system. When you read it in the book, it sounds like it's going to be very interesting that you can sneak around the ship that, you know, as long as you're careful and you spend some extra actions, you can get out of, you know, some precarious uh, situations. But the fact that so much random stuff happens, it really doesn't matter if you're careful. You might as well just go barge into the ship because when the events happen or p- other people move around you or things happen that there's that there's really nothing you can do to Absolutely. control. It. I was quite surprised. I was looking at Adam Kupinski's designer entry on BoardGameGeek and there's this line about him and the line is, quote, he likes heavy games where one can spend hours on healthy rivalry and doesn't enjoy too much randomness, end quote. Well, then, I'm amazed he designed Nemesis, or he probably hates playing it, because, as you say, there's randomness upon randomness. You need to find the right room. There's this die that's going to determine whether or not there are spawns. Even if you do everything very carefully, there might be the event that says that the spawns happen anyway, or it floods the ship with, with malfunction markers, and the ship just goes from perfectly healthy to blowing up entirely after a single event card pull. Well, I'm just saying that he uses everything, right? You got random cards, you got random dice, and it's like, oh, well, we'll have a bag as well for the aliens where you can pull out random chits, because we don't have that since of randomness either and this will kind of encapsulate a lot of my thoughts on nemesis i would be willing to forgive a lot of this if it actually delivered on any elements of the tension or any elements of the narrative that the game seems to think that it does and what the fans of nemesis say that it does because for example just just to highlight this issue when a monster shows up when an alien finally shows up it's not a moment of tension for me it's not a moment of excitement it's a moment of tedium because I have a checklist of 23 tiles that I need to flip up so I can get to my my victory condition. And this alien isn't a challenge to overcome. It is a roadblock. It is just this thing that shows up out of nowhere. And now I have another thing to deal with that arbitrarily showed up to impede my victory conditions while other people are running around on the ship. And this isn't even so much a criticism of the combat system because the combat system is functional. It's fine. No, I have a whole thing on combat. I don't think it's fine at all. My my biggest problem was that it just see, adds to the tedium because you're going to run out of ammo. And for most characters, what that means is you have another thing on your checklist of tedious chores to do. Oh, I got to run to this other room to try to find more ammo, hopefully. Or now I have to, I'm locked in combat in even worse conditions. Again, not tense. Not exciting, not thrilling. I wasn't, I, I wasn't engaged by the combat the way I am in other combat-heavy games. It just felt like another tedious roadblock. Yeah, like we talked, we talked about this, like the fact that you're going to roll the same die no matter what gun you use. Even if it's hand-to-hand, you're, you're rolling the same die. So it doesn't really matter what weapon you're using. You have to, you know, like you already said, you have to gauge your ammunition. So you're either, you're always short, you're always trying to reload your gun and you can't find ammunition anywhere. And and we've talked about it, that games like this 
often benefit over quantity over quality is what I'm saying is the fact that it usually does better when you have tons of aliens that die really quickly in a dead easy combat system as opposed to intricate you know combat against you know you know bigger aliens you know something like a space hulk or these zombie games or you know aliens from 1989 things that like you cycle through the aliens really quickly nice fun you're knocking them down or if you're gonna do the sort of singular unseen threat so again as as I should be relatively clear, and we probably should have pegged this right from the beginning, Nemesis is a straightforward alien ripoff, 100%. It has elements of aliens, but it's mostly alien. You're running around on a derelict ship trying to find and get your victory conditions going. And visually, it's a straight ripoff from, from the alien movies. But there's there are two different dynamics, two different feels that you can go for, just like there are two different feels in the movies, right? Ridley Scott's Alien is about tension. It's about the fear of the unknown. Whereas Aliens is an action flick where you're mowing down tons and tons of xenomorphs. I like both movies, but I like them in different ways. And I agree with you that if you're going to do tension, there are two different ways to do it. And I think Nemesis fails at both. You can get tension out of a game of claustrophobia or a game of Space Hulk where you're mowing down large quantities of enemies, but you're you're wondering, can I push my luck? Are they going to make it? Am I going to... Is the gene stealer going to get in the one good shot? You can also do tension in the sort of alien mold, which was actually done relatively well in a lot of hidden movement games like Spectre Ops or really done well in Not Alone. Not Alone did that where there's one alien and you don't know if the alien's going to catch you and you're running around on this planet trying to get things done. But again, Nemesis tries to do too much and accomplishes very little. And as a result, what you're left with is tedium. Yeah, I want to touch on that, on the sort of, if there's any stress in this game. And like you, like we said, everyone's got their own objective and I found that I just really didn't care what other people's objectives were. It wasn't until like the very end of the game where you were, it did happen in the last game we played where you sort of, you're playing this game of chicken. One person is sitting in the control room. They might at the last minute change where the ship is going, or one person might be, you know, sitting at the button that starts the self-destruct and you're just waiting to see if they're going to move in or out of that room, what they're going to do, or are we all going to be all play nice, nice and, and go have a little nappy nap. Right. And I can, I can really see someone you know, tanking this game on purpose at the end, either they, they don't think they're going to win or, you know, they think they can squeak out the only victory. You know what I mean? They want to be the only winner and, you know, blow the ship up, make the whole two hours that you play, you know, worth nothing. And because it's fun for them. And I, I just don't like that type of game. There was one moment of borderline tension, as you described, I was sitting in the bridge and you were sitting one room away. I didn't know why you were going to that room. And I thought that maybe you're headed to the bridge to send the ship off to a different destination. And that was the first time in any of our plays where I thought, oh, well, this is kind of weird. I'm not 100% sure why he's doing what he's doing. However, this was undercut by two things. Number one, this lasted for precisely one action because then you left because you didn't care about the control room. And you didn't have time to make me worried that you did care about the control room. You didn't care. It wasn't, it wasn't your business to make me nervous. You had your own stuff to take care of, so you went and took care of that stuff. And number two, even if you had been seriously concerned about sending the ship elsewhere in a way in a, in a, to a place that I didn't want it to go, this was entirely dependent on turn order shenanigans again, because I was earlier in the turn order and I had to commit before you did, and so I had precious little option to me available in order to try to counter your moves other than just pass for the round and hope that I could clean up the mess later. So in the one glimmer of hope that I had that there might be some tension, a standoff 
nested in uncertainty about goals. It was completely undercut by a relatively rigid turn order system. So I, that never really paid off. And ultimately, as, as you keep saying, it's all about going nappy nap, which is entirely correct because there's two ways to survive. You either go into cold sleep or you go in, in an escape pod. And this just highlights another aspect of the randomness because the way that you get into the cryo chamber or into the escape pod is you just roll a die and hope an alien doesn't spawn and then if the spawn the alien spawns oh well you got to deal with it and that's just more tedium before you can get off the damn ship so all in all we love nemesis wonderful game of the year what a great game so i don't think i would want to play nemesis again i really had the same feeling whether i won or lost it was just sort of like well that happened and uh I, I was had I did have high hopes for Nemesis after reading the rule book. It did sound like it was the sort of, you know, a little bit more advanced Space Hulk that I wanted. But when it finally did play out, it just didn't it didn't do it for me. That's for first sure. time we played when the ship blew up. I felt a sense of relief. In subsequent playings, I was shocked that I had I felt like I'd seen everything already. We'd gone through the tedium of revealing all the bits of the ship. It was just a function of just randomly pulling off the stacks and hoping that the room came up in a, in a way that was more advantageous for my victory conditions than not. And I was shocked at how little variety there was in those victory conditions. I would even be willing to forgive the unbalanced victory conditions a little bit if there was a large universe of possible things that people were trying to do. But there was no tension, no excitement, no interest, no engagement. I just Nemesis for me was a complete dud. So, thank you very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at the games you like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236. And you can find us on Patreon. We have a Patreon. Thank you so, so much for your support. We appreciate it endlessly. Look for more bonus content in the coming week. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%.